0: I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And we've been doing a series of shows on celiac disease, or gluten intolerance, And this is our fourth and final program, and I'm very happy to welcome Melinda Dennis, who is a fellow dietitian with expertise specifically in celiac disease. She herself is afflicted with it. She is the co-author of a book called Real Life with Celiac Disease, and she's based in a very prestigious institution. She is the nutrition coordinator and a founding member of the Celiac Center at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, Massachusetts. So welcome, Melinda. Thank you, Melinda, for having me. I've read your book, and I think it's probably one of the best resources out there for anyone who is either dealing with living with celiac disease or maybe suspects that they might have a gluten intolerance and and all areas in between. You mentioned that you yourself have had celiac disease for 20 years, and in your book you say there has been no better time in history to have celiac disease. Why is that? Well... Over twenty years ago, when I was diagnosed, you really did
1: feel alienated from the general public as far as eating. Certainly, dining out was an awful experience because there was no awareness of celiac disease and and how to follow the gluten-free diet. and there were very few things on the shelves to eat as far as processed food. I remember you know a loaf of bread, maybe two, um, one cracker, a cereal. So it was really rudimentary and, and it was quite an isolating experience. And now, as you know, the market is unbelievable. I mean, there are approximately 60 million people following the gluten-free diet for one reason or another in the United States. And with that comes a lot of national awareness and certainly a lot of change in restaurant industry and in the food industry and, and in healthcare in general.
0: Yeah, I remember 30 years ago working as a clinical dietitian and having a patient with celiac disease, and there were no products. This individual was living in a rural community. There were no gluten-free products. We had to order very nasty-tasting products, actually, through a catalog, and they were very expensive, and I really felt for this individual. And now, in reading your book, I'm learning that there are one in 130 people are... Are suspect to have this disease. Is that true? That's right.
1: Right, and it's probably even more than that. Even even more than one in one hundred and thirty. Probably closer to one in hundred. But now, what's happened is that there's been a inc- great increase in the diagnosis of celiac disease, and that's because one of the blood antibody levels, the TTG, was discovered in the early '90s, and that has allowed a very easy and simple and affordable test to be used to diagnose it. And so though there are approximately 1 million Americans who have celiac disease, there are still remaining about 95% who are walking around who do not know that they have this. So we've come a long way, but we have an incredible amount of people to find. Still.
0: But are we recommending a nationwide screening
1: we're not. We're not recommending that at this time because of the cost. And what we call it is we look for very, very close clinical symptoms,
0: mm-hmm.
1: close clinical follow-up of people who have celiac disease in their families, so checking their relatives, their first-degree, secondary relatives. We're very, very eager to Run tests and, if necessary, biopsies on those people who come out with blood tests that are positive for it for the suspicion of celiac.
0: What are the common symptoms that people should be aware of? Melinda, it goes across the entire body. So the
1: classic, the classic face of celiac disease was somebody who lost a tremendous amount of weight, they had fat malabsorption, so maybe they had floating, foul smelling, frothy stools, diarrhea gas and bloating and cramping, all kinds of things. And children, definitely failure to thrive, that sort of classical face. But that's not what we see anymore, that celiac disease is caught more quickly. What we're seeing now is iron deficiency, anemia, infertility issues, irritability, maybe some neurological issues like headaches and poor concentration So you see it could be someone who's constipated and overweight or with no weight loss at all. It can be a skin rash, which is called dermatitis herpetiformis, joint pains. I mean, it really goes on and on through the whole body, including elevated liver enzymes and bone early osteopenia that really, or osteoporosis, it should not be in a person of that age.
0: Yeah, it's so perplexing, isn't it? Because you'd think that if an illness was affecting the GI tract, that the symptoms would be clearly GI related. I can understand the gas and bloating. I can understand diarrhea, maybe even constipation. But if there's a malabsorption syndrome going on, or if there's an, I shouldn't say malabsorption, should I? It's really an issue of of an autoimmune disease. That's exactly what I was going to say. That's exactly it.
1: Because this is an autoimmune disease, you could call it an extra intestinal disease. They're going to affect beyond the intestine, far beyond the intestine. That's one of the reasons it's been so hard to diagnose it in the past, because you you're looking just at the gut. But people really need to look, you know, beyond that. Or is the person experiencing hair loss? Yeah. Are they weak? You know. Are yeah. they losing their words? It can affect any part of the body, like diabetes and thyroid disease are. Is their sister autoimmune disease?
0: Yes. I had interviewed Dr. Peter Green early on in this series, and he explained that we are seeing an increase in autoimmune diseases in this country. And I find that to be very curious. I think that it's based on the people that I've spoken to thus far. We really don't know what what is at the root of this increase in autoimmune disease. But Do you think that we're diagnosing more celiac disease or gluten intolerance because of something that's changed in our environment? There is definitely that piece that we
1: have modified the wheat protein to such a great extent. You know, 10,000 years ago, we started to modify this wheat protein. And because of that, in the last 10,000 years, we've made tremendous changes to that wheat. 2.5 million years ago, we weren't even eating wheat. Yeah. So from 2.5 million years ago into 10,000 years ago, we were just the hunter and gatherers. Then we started using the grains. We modified it to such an extent it has an incredibly high protein content and thus gluten content, and they really think that that's one of the reasons why we're seeing more of a prevalence now. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons.
0: Well, let's talk about what happens when someone with celiac disease consumes wheat. How does the body react?
1: So because it's an autoimmune disease, the body responds as if, you know, the body unfortunately and mistakenly identifies wheat protein or gliadin or gluten as a toxin, and it launches an autoimmune response against that. And in the launching of that response, the killer T cells begin to destroy the lining of the small intestine, and that's what leads to the Decreased absorption or potential decreased absorption of your vitamins and minerals that you're getting from your food. Mm-hmm. So, in a normal case, someone would be naturally and, and very healthfully absorbing the necessary vitamins and minerals and nutrients, including the carbohydrates and the proteins and the fats that they need to run every day. And in celiac disease, this is this whole process is damaged, so mm-hmm. you're not getting the nutrients necessarily that you need. That's why we see iron deficiency anemia. Iron, as you probably know, is absorbed very up, very uh, high in the small intestine. So that would be one of the first nutrients that would be mm-hmm. affected. And then, of course, there's calcium and vitamin D for the bone health. Those are also very common issues for nutrient deficiencies.
0: And so on, all the way down the, the tract, the small intestinal tract. So celiac disease is an autoimmune disease. But then there's also gluten intolerance. Is there also an allergic response going on? the the wheat allergy the gluten
1: allergy is there is a separate entity a separate pathology okay and celiac disease is a separate pathology and then what you're talking about gluten intolerance is a third one they call it Dr. Fasano calls it the new kid on the block
0: mm-hmm.
1: gluten sensitivity what is that you know and that is gluten sensitivity is diagnosed after you have carefully excluded a wheat allergy and celiac
0: disease I see. Now, you mentioned something earlier in our discussion that among the symptoms, one of them might be joint pain. Where does that come from? How does that develop?
1: Joint pain
0: in celiac
1: disease is a result of inflammation. I see. So because it's an inflammatory, you know, you're having inflammation all across the body. That's why you're seeing so many issues in so many different areas. So that's a manifestation of inflammation in your joints.
0: I see. And is that the link also to a higher risk for cancer? Is it related Inflammate, to the inflammation? Right.
1: So there is, a higher, there is a slightly increased risk of cancer in the celiac population. You know, new studies are going to be coming out on that. The last one that I'm most familiar with is Dr. Green's where he said that you know after about five years of strictly following the gluten-free diet, risk of cancer generally goes back to that of the American population. That's good news. Which is good news, right? right? So I'm sure there are other studies more recently that are coming out showing different levels and and um pointing to different types of cancer, but it really sends the message home, doesn't it, that we need to follow the diet as strictly as possible because if you have an inflammation moving through your body, you want to do everything as everything possible to quell that to keep that
0: very, very quiet. Yes, I think that's great advice. I think inflammation itself is such an interesting condition as it relates to other diseases and all of the different kinds of symptoms that can result from it. I wanted to ask you, because you must be a wonderful practitioner because you yourself have the Mm -hmm. the condition, and so you can really relate to your your patients. But what has been the biggest challenge for you in following a gluten-free diet? The biggest one for me...
1: Wow. You know, I can answer. There's a couple of them, but I guess because I know what inflammation does to the body and because I know now how little gluten it actually takes to see damage in the lining of the small intestine, Mm -hmm. and this would probably be a good time to point this out for folks who are listening, that the amount of gluten that you can get under your baby pinky nail is enough to actually see damage in the mucosa of your small intestine. Wow. So a lot of people feel like you know, sometimes there, occasionally it will be uh, a doctor, or a well-meaning friend, or someone who says, "You know, every once in a while, a little bit of gluten's not going to hurt you." Well, in fact, it really does. Yeah. And though you can't necessarily quantify it in that moment, what happened to to the body right then if you ingested gluten, you do. We do know that very, very small amounts of gluten will show that da- damage, and that is that's what sets off your immune system. That's what right. sets off that response to kill the lining. In a sense to protect you. So knowing that, I know that strict adherence is really important. And I know that when we dine out, we run a risk. Mm-hmm. And it's probably that the fact that I live in the real world. <laughs> mm-hmm. and I'm a real person with real food needs and, and want to eat out that I continue to do that very, very carefully. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I'm imagining that travel is challenging or simply going out with friends. You know, how many times have we been in a situation where somebody will say, hey, let's go out and get some pizza and beer. That's, you know, that's like as American as apple pie. But in truth, the apple pie is off limits. So is the pizza and so is the beer. Right. right. You know, all three. Gluten-free alternatives for all of that. But you're right, you can't find a
1: gluten-free apple pie just anywhere. Right. there's beer showing up all over the place. And,
0: yeah, what and, do you yeah. do around holidays? You know, you're going and to your family oh God, for you. a Thanksgiving, and what do you do?
1: One of the best tips is that you never go anywhere hungry. Right? Yeah, <laughs> so right. You prepare yourself when you leave. Our middle name really is preparation. I always make sure I have an enormous cooler with ice packs in the car, and I make sure I have prepared items that, you know, that I've made that are special for that event wherever I'm going. And they taste so good that no one would know the difference anyway. I rely on the excellent cookbook authors and chefs who are out there now doing amazing things with the alternative gluten-free flours and grains. Mm -hmm. And really, I have dinner parties that are all gluten-free, and people are thrilled by them because they know it's normal food, but it's also interesting food. Right. Because you can delve into the different um, ethnic cuisines all across the world. People are not eating as much wheat as we are. That's right. For the most part. Yeah, They use those grains and they do wonderful things. So with some preparation and some good cookbook reading, you can make it the most exciting,
0: interesting diet and nutritious right if you're just joining us we're speaking with Melinda Dennis she is a fellow dietitian also the nutrition coordinator and a founding member of the celiac Center at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston Massachusetts she's a national lecturer she has written journal articles on celiac disease she is the creator of the delete the wheat website and she is co-author of a terrific book called real life with celiac disease troubleshooting and thriving gluten-free what I like about the book, Melinda, is that it's written from a storytelling standpoint. So every chapter starts out with a real person's experience, and then at the end of each chapter, you've got some great self-management tips, you know, takeaway items that a person can leave with. And you know, we were talking about what do you do when you go out, and and we we talked about how once you're diagnosed with this illness, it's not like you can have gluten occasionally or you can't just cheat and some of the case studies that you have in this book talk about that the challenges of living with the disease and and the temptation especially if you're asymptomatic or you know you can live with a little bit of discomfort we think and so we'll go ahead and go out and have some gluten but really the damage that's going on within the body is serious that's right that's right and we wrote that book in that way because we know
1: that all across the country, there are only a few celiac centers scattered here and there, and there are only a couple handfuls of, of dieticians who are specializing in celiac disease, and more coming every day, I have to say, thankfully. Right. But we wrote the book so that a person can pick it up and help themselves through their medical and nutritional management, and help their doctor understand more, help their own dietitian understand more if necessary. So that they can get the right lab tests, the right nutrition panel done, Mm -hmm. and learn about the foods, etc.
0: One of the situations that I think is probably especially challenging would be for a parent of a child of school age years where they're going into a cafeteria, you know, there isn't a special prep area. There's a case study in here in particular of a woman who is having symptoms, but she thinks she's following a gluten-free diet. Then she's realizing that, you know, her son is making sandwiches on the counter and there are some wheat crumbs. Or, and, mm-hmm. you know, she's using different colanders and she's using different cookware. And then I transfer that to the real world, and I think, well, if a child now is in public school, all of that food is prepared in one main kitchen. Is a child with celiac disease pretty much committed to having food from home? And no sharing of food? Right. No sharing of
1: food, certainly. And you know that the peanut allergy issue has become so big in this country that, right. you know, certain areas, there's, peanuts aren't allowed at all. That's certainly, that's not the case with gluten. Right. Certainly not yet. But yes, you're right. So mothers and fathers have to prepare their child, prepare the food that the, that the child goes with to school, and make sure that the teachers and the counselors and everyone understands that they really can't be sharing or even touching other food or kids' hands who have touched other food. There's a great group called Raising Our Celiac Kids mm. out there. It's called ROCK. It's all across the country. And every major celiac organization will have some link to pediatric groups and help. Oh, good. So whether it's the Gluten Intolerance Group or the Celiac Disease Foundation or CSA USA or the National Foundation for Celiac Awareness, all of them are linked to helping people find um, support, clinical, clinical support and support groups as well.
0: And this would be a good time to plug your website, Delete the Weed. Dot com, yeah. because I love this because you've got links to these celiac sites. So for an individual who is not, as you say, there are limited centers around the country. If you're living in a remote area and you don't have access, I hope at least we have access to the Internet, even if it's through a public library where you can access com, and go and learn more from these different celiac sites that you've mentioned. Right, I try to put my lectures and
1: the articles and things up there on to Delete the Weed and where, you know, where I go in the country and I talk about the book, but I would also just strongly encourage people to go to the major organizations that I just mentioned because there's a tremendous amount of learning material on there. Right. And as long as you're going to a reputable site.
0: Yes, exactly. That's the conundrum so often in nutrition, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Okay, so there's another case study in here that I thought was fascinating, and it has to do with when we're prescribed other medications. And I believe this particular case had to do with, was it a high blood pressure medication that someone was taking that had some some gluten ingredients mm. in it? And then the woman had to deal with working with her pharmacist. And pharmacists, I'm going to give a plug for pharmacists because they are a wealth of approachable information. And they were able to find her an alternative drug that she could take that did not have the gluten component. How typical is that? It is typical, and it's difficult sometimes. There's a
1: there's a great website called GlutenFreeDrugs.com, and it's run by an amazing pharmacist, Steve Blogsted, who's given countless hours of his time to work this site and create it. Now, you know, having said that, it's always best to contact a manufacturer directly to understand exactly what the inactive ingredients are in a medication that you might be taking yes, because that's going to be the latest information. Sometimes it's very, very difficult to get to the source of the starches in these inactive ingredients because they come from third-party suppliers and the company may not know what that source is. And they don't actually have to know. In medications, the inactive ingredient starch source does not have to be known, whereas in Food, you would have to you would have to know that you would have to be able to declare that. Right. So people will often have the option of compounding medications if they can't get an answer at all, and there's no other option for them.
0: Mm-hmm. And what about cooking? I mean, I think about the general population, and gosh, you know, when I was in high school, you know, we all took home economics and we learned how to cook things from scratch. And if you follow the course of our societal trends we're mm-hmm. cooking less we're eating out more how do we get people reoriented to cooking cooking from scratch cooking at home do you have favorite sites or favorite books that really help us go through the motions of cooking well and deliciously without wheat yeah i mean i can
1: just name some some chefs and dietitians who are producing books right now in that in that area to help so there's carol fenster there's Tricia Thompson. Tricia is an RD who also has a few uh, recipes in her nutrition guides that she's written.
0: And Tricia was is, one of our interviewees for the series, oh, okay, I'm happy excellent. to say. Yeah. Um, Jules Shepard,
1: Rebecca Riley, Leslie Serrier, and on and on. If you want information and it's hard to take down names when you're on a radio, you can always go to the sites that I mentioned before because they have links okay. to all of these. Wonderful. And I would just say that when I talk to patients about nutrition, I always start with the question, how much rice and corn and potatoes are you eating versus millet and quinoa and amaranth and teff and sorghum and buckwheat? And usually it's very high ratio of corn, rice, and potato and lower the others, and that's where we start the conversation. Rice, corn, and potatoes in general have much more nutrient-poor And compared to the alternative grains. Mm -hmm. So we start talking about how you can cook those grains. And that starts the whole cooking conversation.
0: Yeah, and I think that for people who have resources and live in urban or suburban areas that have access to, you know, well-stocked grocery stores, using some of these alternative grains is second nature it can become second nature. But for people who are living, say, in rural communities that have very limited access, to a good, well stocked grocery store, I can see this being a real challenge, especially as you mentioned, the rice, corn, and potatoes, comparatively speaking to these other grains, less well known grains, are not as nutrient dense and are not as high in fiber. And fiber then becomes a challenge for those with gluten intolerance. Right, exactly. So I would say that fortunately, you know, there are online
1: companies like Bob's Red Mill, et cetera, oh, yes. that will offer these gluten free, because you can buy anything you want. If you're okay with the the shipping and get those grains, and the grains last a long, long time, you can keep them you know three months in your refrigerator or a year in your freezer mm-hmm. and hold on to them and they cook up right up. You also can get fiber from as you know Monda, from the legumes from lentils from soybeans, and also from the dried beans, navy beans, black beans, and also from the seeds and the nuts, and as long as they're plain and gluten free That is a
0: ton of fiber that's available right there. And that is a wonderful section of your book, Melinda, because you've got a listing of grains that contain gluten that might not be so obvious. For example, spelt, right? One would think, hmm, spelt, maybe that's gluten-free. It's not. Or something like oats, which need to be certified that they're gluten-free. We can't just assume that they are. And is that, if as I understand it, is that because of the, the kinds of processing facilities that have some mixing?
1: That's right. That's, that's one reason. And the second reason is that there's a small subset of people with celiac disease who respond to the oat protein similarly to the way they respond to gluten or gliadin. I see. We can't really identify who those people are. So there's, there seems to be an extra sensitive subpopulation. Mm. So but, you know, in the, for the vast majority of people out there with celiac disease, gluten-free certified oats? Mm -hmm. dedicated facility, are fine and worked into the diet after consultation with your doctor.
0: Okay, that's good to know. And the other thing is barley. You know, some of these these other grains that we'd say not automatically know that those are gluten sources. But you also have lists of alternatives, and you also have a great list in here of how to get the fiber that we need in our diet. So even though you don't have recipes, I think this is a really important book to have on the shelf. Personally. I felt like there were enough recipes out there. Yes, I but I do. didn't feel like there was
1: enough nutritional management specific to all the things that we see in clinic, like like something simple as lactose intolerance, or more complicated like fructose malabsorption. Right, a lot of our population suffers from this inability to properly absorb um, a certain sugar molecule called fructose. And because of that, it will the the symptoms will mimic celiac disease. But someone with fructose malabsorption, often called sort of fructose intolerance, Mm -hmm. will will complain of gas, bloating, cramping, loose stools because the sugar molecule has gone all the way down to their colon, unabsorbed, undigested, and there it pulls water in, and it creates this you know loose stool. And you think you might be getting gluten. But in fact, you're actually just suffering from fructose malabsorption. And it's really not addressed often enough. I really think it needs to get out there for people who are doing their best to follow the diet and don't understand why they're still having problems.
0: I agree with you. And I thought that was a really interesting and important part of this book. We have one minute and I have to ask one last question because it's burning. And that has to do with probiotics. You have a chapter in the book that deals with probiotics somewhat I've heard conflicting right. information now. One is that there can be bacterial overgrowth in the gut, and so you don't want to use probiotics. And another side that says, no, probiotics are good because they help populate the gut with beneficial flora. What are your thoughts? So just
1: really quickly, bacterial overgrowth is, um, is a disorder where you treat it with antibiotics, and then you follow it typically with probiotics. I so see. that you can replenish the flora of your gut with the healthy bacteria. So you'd use probiotics after the treatment for bacterial overgrowth, which is done, which is diagnosed via via breast test. Okay. That could be done in the clinic.
0: Well, I want to thank you, Melinda, so (coughs) much for for this And, and recommend your book, recommend your website. Again, we've been speaking with Melinda Dennis, registered dietitian. She is with the celiac center at beth israel deaconess medical center in boston national lecturer journal article author creator of the delete the wheat website and co-author of a must-have book called real life with celiac disease troubleshooting and thriving gluten-free i want to thank our listeners for joining us and i want to remind everyone that food sleuth radio is produced by dan hemelgarn at kopn studios in beautiful downtown columbia missouri melinda thank you so much for being with us today Thank you so much. It was wonderful.